I can't beat him on the airwaves, but I can beat him on the debate stage. And I think people of America deserve that. Hey, well, guess what, Amy Klobuchar? Americans will get what they deserve. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. Yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe as well on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, joining us. I've got some important news from over the uh, weekend, over the holiday weekend that you may have missed. Uh, in an effort to ensure reliable results in its February 22nd presidential caucus, the Nevada State Democratic Party announced on Friday that it had addressed election security concerns by upgrading to a new system of electronic voters. <laughs> electronic there, voters. There is a lot of potential for human error when you have people recording their votes on paper, but we believe we can greatly reduce inaccuracies by digitizing the entire process, <laughs> including the voters themselves, According to party chair Bill McCurdy, who explained that electronic voters select candidates faster and more precisely than their human counterparts, allowing delegates to be awarded to the correct candidate immediately and eliminating the need to contest the outcome. <laughs> you see What's that from there you go. Oh, that's from the news. I got it off the Internet. <laughs> it's, so it must be true. It, that, of course, is uh, from The Onion. Uh, we will uh, we'll try to get to more actual concerns about this Saturday's upcoming Nevada caucuses, in which, at least this time, I am not alone in predicting that we could see a mess. Oh, goody. That makes the Iowa caucuses, Desi Doyen, look like a picnic. Oh, even better. We will try to get to that in a bit, but just by way of reminder of why all of this matters or should there was this related-ish story over the weekend. Problems with electronic voting systems forced the Dominican Republic 
to suspend municipal elections across the country on Sunday. The president of the Central Election Board announced voting was halted after about three hours because of problems at about 50 percent, 50 percent of the polling places that used electronic ballot machines. This is not the onion. Just to be clear, the previous story was (laughs) about electronic voters. This story is real. Such machines were apparently used in 17 of the Caribbean country's 158 municipalities and in the capital, generally the most populous ones. Not unlike in this country where the most populous jurisdictions tend to use electronic voting systems. According to The Guardian, 62% of Dominicans, out of some 7 million voters who were eligible to cast a vote in the election, 62% of them were to have voted on these electronic systems. Opposition parties complained that some of their candidates were not appearing on the electronic ballots. Hmm, that sounds familiar. But The Guardian also notes that long lines formed outside the polling stations as the ballots failed to load at all. That sounds familiar, too. Yep, that's what happens when you rely on computer tech for mission-critical elections, all of which sounds familiar. Election Electoral authorities said they would investigate the cause of the problems and try to determine if it was intentional Electoral officials said they would meet with political party leaders in the coming days to set a new date for new elections. The observers at the Organization of American States said that they were told about the problems on Saturday night, but it was impossible to resolve them before voting started. They pledged to continue uh, supporting the electoral process in the Dominican Republic. Well, at least it was caught and at least voting was stopped because of it in this country. You know, I think we would A, deny that it was happening at all. B, finally, maybe sort of acknowledge that, okay, yeah, it was happening, but we can't stop an election. And then C, we would try to argue that even if it did happen, it just I'm sure it wouldn't have affected enough voters to change the results of the election. And maybe D, even if it did, oh, well, I guess those Democratic election officials should have done a better job checking their voting machines first. Unless, of course, uh, D part two. Uh, Unless, of course, it was affecting Republicans, in which we would have never gotten past the A item there because they would have demanded that the election be annulled, period, end of story. And frankly, they would be right to do so. How unusual for there to be problems with electronic voting systems in uh, any place that uses them. So good thing that America is adding more of them for the critical 2020 election. More than ever, instead of going to verifiable hand-marked paper ballot systems. But hey, who listens to us? Certainly not Nevada, but we'll get there in a bit. Yes, they are using hand-marked paper ballots in Nevada. But instead of leaving that alone, they're adding a bunch of tech on top of it. Because you always have to insert a computer somewhere. So first, uh, before we get there, uh, because we are in a very serious criminal justice crisis in this country right now, thanks to Donald Trump and William Barr's complete corruption of the once revered U.S. Department of Justice. And that crisis is getting worse. 
not better since last week's major upheavals. Uh, we got to get to that first. But I do want to throw out a quick thanks to um, well, a few people. First to Nicole Sandler for filling in for us so ably as she always does last Friday. Also want to thank those of you who turned out over the weekend for the KPFK Speaker Series out here in Los Angeles, where our friend Tom Hartman was out here to promote his new book on the hidden history of the war on voting. What? I did. I, there, I had known there was such a thing. <laughs> it, it must have been well hidden. It's actually an interesting book. It's got lots of interesting little anecdotes that you will not have heard. <laughs> uh, indeed. And also our, our friends uh, Stephanie Miller and Greg Pallast were there as well. I got to... Uh, Speak for a few minutes uh, to send up a yet another f- warning flare about the new 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems that are coming here to Los Angeles to the nation's largest voting jurisdiction uh, for the first time on March 3rd for Super Tuesday. What could possibly go wrong? I'm sure it will all go smoothly, just as smoothly as the uh, county clerk registrar recorder Dean Logan says it will out here. But anyway, I just wanted to give a quick thanks to those of you who showed up for the sold-out event and supported our flagship station here in L.A., KPFK 90.7. It was great to meet uh, so many of our listeners, actually. And um, so just thanks, I guess, is all I want to say. Let's try to do it again soon, shall we? Okay, now back to the less-than-pleasantries, the horrors, in fact. Starting here, President Donald Trump has gone on a clemency blitz, commuting the 14-year prison sentence of former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, pardoning former New York Police Department Commissioner and Rudy Giuliani best bud Bernie Carrick, among a long list of others on Tuesday. Trump also told reporters that he has pardoned financier Michael Milken, who pleaded guilty for violating U.S. securities laws and served two years in prison in the early 90s. Trump also pardoned Edward DiBartolo Jr., the former San Francisco 49ers owner who was convicted in a massive gambling fraud scandal. Blagojevich, who appeared on Trump's reality TV show Celebrity Apprentice, so, you know, he just happens to know him. It helps to be a buddy of the president. He was convicted of political corruption, including seeking to sell an appointment to Barack Obama's old Senate seat and trying to shake down a children's hospital. But Trump said that he had been subject to a, quote, ridiculous sentence that didn't fit his crimes because I guess Donald Trump would know such things, not the career Department of Justice prosecutors and the seasoned federal judges who, by the way, gave Blagojevich less than the prescribed sentence for his crimes, according to the federal sentencing guidelines. But, you know, he's a white guy. He knows Donald Trump. So it's a, quote, ridiculous sentence. Anything more than off scot-free, I suspect, would uh, would meet that bar when it comes to Donald Trump. And now Bernie Carrick, he served just over three years for tax fraud. Now, why would Trump have sympathy for that, I wonder? And for lying to the White House while being interviewed to be Homeland Security Secretary. Huh. Why would Trump have sympathy for lying to federal officials? Trump pardoned uh, DiBartolo Jr., the uh, former San Francisco 49ers owner. Uh, He was involved in one of the biggest owners scandals in sports history. In 1998, 
He pleaded guilty to failing to report a felony when he paid $400,000 to former Louisiana Governor Edwin Edwards in exchange for a riverboat gambling license. What, so bribery is now a felony in this country? We can't have that. Trump also pardoned Ariel Friedler, a technology entrepreneur who pleaded guilty to accessing a computer without authorization. What? Hacking into a computer? That shouldn't be a crime. Paul Pogue, a construction company owner who underpaid his taxes, was also pardoned. Failing to pay taxes? That's just the American way. Am I right, Mr. President? And David Safavian, who was convicted of obstructing an investigation into a trip that he took while he was a senior government official. So, uh, you know, government corruption and obstruction of justice. Don't even get Trump started about those annoyances. Those are just some of the people that Donald Trump is uh, now apparently pardoning at a uh, very fast clip. This is, you know, it, as I was reading about this, it's it's like... It's like the Joker suddenly somehow became mayor of Gotham City mm. and he's emptying all the jails of his fellow criminals through clemency and pardons. But, of course, this uh, follows on the crisis already underway at the U.S. Department of Justice. And crisis, I don't even know if that's the right word at this point. Anyway, it does not seem strong enough. Underway at the Department of Justice and uh, in our criminal justice system overall under Donald Trump, given the extraordinary and, yes, unprecedented actions of the past week regarding Trump's other best buddy, that would be actual Batman villain Roger Stone, as well as Trump's former national security advisor Mike Flynn, both of whom were determined to be guilty of lying to federal officials about their crimes, which clearly Trump hopes to send as a message that that it is now apparently totally legal to do so, and it would be a ridiculous sentence to accuse anybody for doing any of those things. But the point is not because it's, you know, shouldn't be criminal for his criminal friends, but so that it's clearly not criminal for himself as his own legal troubles and I do believe they will finally catch up with him one way or another, no matter how much he keeps running from them as long as he can, hiding behind a corrupt presidency and ridiculous interpretations of the Constitution to stay out of trouble. This is all going to eventually catch up to him. At least that's uh, the hope that I cling to. We'll see if I am right eventually. It may take a few years, but... Uh, Anyway, all of that, uh, that clemency and everything else, that was on top of the ongoing uh, crisis that we are already facing, about which a former deputy attorney general under President George H.W. Bush, uh, that's back when uh, Bill Barr served as attorney general for the first time for a short stint. That attorney general, that deputy attorney general, is calling on Bill Barr to resign, citing the events of the last week surrounding Roger Stone's sentencing reversal, calling that the, quote, worst conduct thus far. In a new op-ed in The Atlantic, Donald Ayer outlines the ways in which Barr has torn down reforms that were put in place at the, ju at the uh, Justice Department after the Nixon-era Watergate scandal. All of this has been just torn apart by Bill Barr. 
Uh, he writes about how Barr has handled the Stone and Michael Flynn cases, which air, like many Trump critics, believes are attacks on Special Counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe specifically. He writes, Ayers writes, bad as they are, these examples are more symptoms than causes of Barr's unfitness for office. The fundamental problem is that he does not believe in the central tenet of our system of government, that no person is above the law. In chilling terms, Barr's own words make clear his long-held belief in the need for a virtually autocratic executive who is not constrained by countervailing powers within our government under the constitutional system of checks and balances. Ayers went on to write, Bill Barr's America is not a place that anyone, including Trump voters, should want to go. It is a banana republic where all are subject to the whims of a dictatorial president and his henchmen. To prevent that, we need a public uprising, he says, demanding that Bill Barr resign immediately or, failing that, that he be impeached. Now, remember, Donald uh, Ayer is not some lefty Democrat. He was appointed a U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of California by then-President Ronald Reagan. Later, he was appointed as deputy AG by George H.W. Bush and was actually succeeded in that specific job by, yup, Bill Barr, who would later go on to become AG at the end of Bush's term. Here's air on MSNBC on Monday. The problem here goes to a whole pattern of things that he's done since the beginning of his term, including the whitewashing of the Mueller report, including sort of categorically rejecting the critical finding of the inspector general's report, including a whole series of um, OLC opinions that had been issued to support the, the um, stonewalling of, of Congress and a variety of other things um, with regard to a whole variety of traditional checks and balances. The things that he has done, which are totally inappropriate, are not a mistake. They are a reflection of who he is and what he believes. And what he believes is un-American. What he believes is that the president should be a person above the law. Americans don't believe that the president should be above the law, and that's the reason Bill Barr needs to go. That's the reason he needs to go. That was former Deputy Attorney General under former President George H.W. Bush, Donald Ayer. And remember, when he argued that even Trump voters should want Barr to go, describing what we have become as a banana republic where all are subject to the whims of a dictatorial president, a dictatorial president and his henchmen. To prevent that, we need a public uprising demanding that Bill Barr resign immediately or failing that be impeached, he wrote. But he is hardly the only one calling for such action right now. More than 2,000 former Justice Department officials who served in Republican as well as Democratic administrations have now signed a statement that was posted on Sunday calling on Bill Barr to resign. That's nearly double the 1,100 who had signed it when it was first published on Sunday. Two days later now, and it's over 2,000 former DOJ officials. The rare statement from these officials, mostly former career prosecutors, but also some former political appointees, comes after the DOJ leadership said that it would lower the amount of prison time that it was going to seek for Trump ally Roger Stone, reversing the original sentencing recommendation brought by DOJ prosecutors last week 
That then prompted four DOJ lawyers who had prosecuted the Stone case to quit the case altogether, one of them resigning from the DOJ entirely. It is unheard of for the department's top leaders to overrule line prosecutors who are following established policies in order to give preferential treatment to a close associate of the president, as Attorney General Barr did in the Stone case, reads this letter from, again, more than 2,000 former, 2000 former DOJ officials. Those actions and the damage they have done to the Department of Justice's reputation for integrity and the rule of law require Mr. Barr to resign. It also notes, quote, because we have little expectation that Barr will resign, it falls to the to the department's career officials to take appropriate action to uphold their oaths of office and defend nonpartisan apolitical justice. The letter points to the Department of Justice's rules for its lawyers, noting that legal decisions, quote, must be impartial and insulated from political influence. And yet President Trump and Attorney General Barr have openly and repeatedly flouted this fundamental principle. The letter commends the four prosecutors who withdrew from the Stone case saying, quote, we call on every DOJ employee to follow their heroic example. They state advising staff to report any future abuses to the inspector general, to the Office of Professional Responsibility and to Congress. As uh, Rachel Maddow, who has been uh, covering this in depth of late notes, uh, this is not a warning. This is not something that could happen. She, I think, uh, correctly identifies this is happening. I, and and I think that's uh, an important note to make because, you know, for the past three years, we've been warning, oh, this is getting bad. Look what they're doing. Look what they are setting up. They're no longer setting up. They are doing it. Our Justice Department is under siege from within. And the bad guys here have taken over at the DOJ, which has now been breached and corrupted by them from the inside. I don't know that the U.S. has ever seen anything like this before. I don't know. I'm not a historian. But this seems, and the way everybody is speaking of it, uh, unprecedented. This is very real. And as Donald Ayers said, uh, should disturb even Trump supporters. Now, whether they even know about any of that, of course, uh, any of this, of course, that's a, a different matter entirely. Who knows if they do, since Fox News and right-wing talk radio uh, don't tell them about these things. Right wing talk radio, shamefully, which has uh, long ago taken control of our public airwaves. If you found me on your public airwaves, good luck. Congratulations. Glad you did. But uh, I am a rarity compared to the way the uh, right wingers have taken over our public airwaves, which media critic Sue Wilson wrote about last week at Bradblog.com in an article headlined Impeachment by Radio. The elephant in the room is not the GOP. I recommend it. We may uh, talk to Sue about that article on air uh, in the next few days, if time allows. But in any case, Fox News and right wing talk radio, uh, they are both very selective about what they bother to inform their listeners about. So who even knows if Donald Trump supporters know about any of this? 
And it seems like we need, uh, Desi, a, a stronger word than crisis at this point. I, and I don't know. You got one for me? I, Unfortunately, I, I don't. I was trying to think of something yeah. like, you know, emergency doesn't quite catastrophe, uh, cataclysm in the making. Ta- I, you know, uh, I don't know what will actually get folks to get up and, and do something. And take to understand action. what is actually going on here. Uh, if, if you got a better word than crisis, by the way, feel free to email me. <laughs> I, I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. Uh, I may need those words. Uh, and, and then finally, this crisis, this emergency, this five alarm constitutional criminal justice crisis in America. For now, yes, it, it really is that bad. And this is uh, still more evidence. A National Association of Federal Judges has called an emergency meeting. Federal judges, an emergency meeting to uh, to address a growing uh, to address growing concerns about the intervention of Justice Department officials and President Donald Trump in politically sensitive cases. According to the group's president on Monday, Philadelphia U.S. District Judge Cynthia Roof, who heads the Independent Federal Judges Association, said that the group could, quote, could not wait until its spring conference. Mind you, that spring conference was scheduled for April, uh, mid-April. And, you know, here we are uh, nearing the end of February. It could not wait for that. They are having an emergency meeting to weigh in on the deepening crisis that is enveloping the DOJ and Attorney General Bill Barr. There are plenty of issues that we are concerned about, Roof told USA Today. We'll talk all of this through, she said, about the meeting now set for Wednesday afternoon of this week. Roof is also, by the way, not a Democratic lefty. She was nominated to the bench by President George W. Bush. She said the group of more than 1,000 federal judges called the meeting called for the meeting last week after Trump criticized the prosecutor's initial sentencing recommend uh, sentencing recommendations for his friend Roger Stone. And then when the Department of Justice overruled those recommendations, uh, Trump also took a swipe last week at the federal judge who sits on that case. That's U.S. Federal District Court Judge Amy Berman Jackson. She is set to preside at Stone's sentencing hearing this Thursday. That should be interesting. And uh, by the way, uh, Trump attacked that same judge again today on Twitter. Judge Roof said, uh, praising Jackson's reputation, I'm not concerned with how a particular judge will rule. We are supportive of any federal judge who does what is required. The unusual concern voiced by the judges, according to USA Today, comes in the wake of an equally unusual protest. That would be the more than 2,000 former Justice Department officials who called on Barr to resign on Sunday, claiming that uh, his handling of the Stone case openly and repeatedly flouted the principle of equal justice in this country. Last week's move in the Stone case was followed by Friday's disclosure that Barr had appointed an outside prosecutor now to come in and review the criminal case of Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. In uh, the case where Flynn, who uh, pled guilty already to lying to federal investigators about his contact with Russian officials during the Mueller Russia probe, also saw his sentencing recommendation changed by senior DOJ officials to recommend no jail time, only probation. That will be fine. 
The decision to review the Flynn case comes as Barr has engaged in reviews of equally sensitive matters, including an ongoing criminal investigation into the origins of the Russian investigation, Russia investigation uh, itself, which the department's own inspector general already looked into and determined there was no inappropriate political motives involved in it. That's not good enough for Barr. So he's also investigating that. Yes, this is a very real crisis. This is very much happening right now. Our Department of Justice is rotting from the inside. And yes, it seems to me that even Donald Trump supporters ought to give a damn about it. In any event, on Wednesday, these uh, federal judges, they're set to convene via a conference call that will involve uh, about 15 to 20 officers and mem members of the, uh, of the group's executive committee. So more than 2,000 Republican and Democratic former DOJ officials, more than 1,000 federal judges, all making clear that we are now in a very serious moment in American history. Very serious all of which underscores, I would argue, more than ever, the need to remove this president by hook or by crook this November. Unfortunately, that looks like it's going to be left up to Democrats. God help us. And yes, we've got some news there today. That's next on the broadcast as we move on to what could be another potential disaster at the Democratic caucuses coming up this weekend in Nevada. And the new news on what Michael Bloomberg's billions has now bought him in Las Vegas. That is straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Can buy me love, love, can buy me love. Buy you well, uh, it might not buy him love, but actually I think it might be buying him love. Uh, despite his absence on the Nevada caucuses ballot next week and his absence from the South Carolina primary the week after and his absence from the two previous nominating contests in Iowa and New Hampshire and his absence from any debate stage so far in the already long campaign season, Democratic presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg seemed to have at this point has taken over much of the discord surrounding the 2020 presidential election in recent days. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. From the controversy surrounding his racist stop and frisk policy uh, policing policy during his mayoral term in New York City to his support for racist and unlawful redlining policies in real estate to allegations that he made stunningly misogynistic remarks toward female employees. Bloomberg, who was a, formerly a Republican and then an independent and now a Democrat, well, 
his Democratic presidential uh, fellow Democratic presidential candidates had a whole lot to say about the former New York City mayor throughout their appearances on the Sunday news program, as did everyone else. Bloomberg seemed to come up in all of the appearances with the various Democratic frontrunners on the Sunday shows, not including Bloomberg, who did not appear on any of those Sunday shows, <laughs> to my knowledge. Convenient, uh, no? Yeah. Of course, his advertisements did during all of the shows. His name was uh, raised, for example, by uh, Meet the Press's Chuck Todd, who told Amy Klobuchar, who was speaking from Las Vegas before Saturday's Nevada caucuses, which she is on the ballot for, that her own uh, recent record fundraising haul of $12 million in one week after a better-than-expected third-place finish for Klobuchar in New Hampshire, that that was swell, but that she must view the billionaire Bloomberg's $300 million overall spending advantage so far as daunting. $12 million in a week is impressive. $300 million from Michael Bloomberg is what you're facing. And I say this because you, you guys are fighting for the same part of the party here. I mean, it, it is that has got to be daunting. On one hand, you've got some money. You can start building a national campaign, but you're facing this onslaught. Yeah, I mean, honestly, is it daunting? Yes, because I do things like go on your show, take tough questions, and then at the same time, he is running more ads on whatever he wants during that same time. Uh, that's what life is. And I think what needs to happen here is that he needs to go on shows like this, uh, which he hasn't done. He just can't hide behind the airways. He has to answer questions. And, of course, I think he should be on that debate stage, which eventually he will be, uh, because I can't beat him on the airways, but I can beat him on the debate stage. And I think people of America deserve that to make a decision. Well, as I said at the top of the show... Uh, Americans always get what they deserve. <laughs> One way or the other. And, uh, yep, Amy Klobuchar is about to get her wish. Bloomberg has qualified now to appear on the uh, 2020 primary debate stage on Wednesday night after reaching the Democratic National Committee's required polling threshold. This news just breaks today. Kevin Sheakey, Bloomberg's campaign manager, said, quote, Mike is looking forward to joining the other Democratic candidates on stage and making the case for why he's the best candidate to defeat Donald Trump and unite the country. The DNC eliminated its donor requirement back in early February for the debates to the anger of Bloomberg's rivals. They accused the DNC of trying to grease the wheels for the billionaire's self-funded campaign. I guess uh, supposedly since he is so wealthy, he is taking no money from Americans for his run, in theory, even as he has spent more on TV ads. And it is not even close. It is like 20 or 30 times higher than any other candidate. Actually, it is more than all of them combined. And I believe that includes Tom Steyer, who is also using a sliver of his billions to spend more than anyone other than Bloomberg on TV ads. But in Steyer's case, he only managed to come in sixth in New Hampshire last week with all of that money spent, swamping everyone else on the airwaves. He came in sixth place with just 3.6% of the vote in, uh, in the New Hampshire primary. So it's not clear, frankly, that uh, having all that money and having all of those ads on, on the TV machine actually translates into votes. At least once people see you talking on the debate stage, as Steyer has 
experience to drop. So the money may get you on that stage, but you have to keep yourself there. So, I mean, it does show, again, as Mm -hmm. always, that money in politics works, and that's why the Republicans do it. It works to some extent. It certainly worked to get Bloomberg this far. It is obscene. We've got to get money out of politics, period. But uh, as to Bloomberg, uh, the other candidates have signaled that they are that they can't wait uh, to do exactly what you're saying, Desi Doyen, to confront him actually with questions in a live format. Yeah, he's going to have to stand and deliver on that. And they are ready to pounce on uh, the uh, former New York City mayor and his racially biased stop and frisk policy that targeted young black and Latino men uh, primarily in New York City. Bloomberg has defended that stop and frisk policy as recently as 2015. And so, you know, I'm sure he's going to say, oh, that was 2015. I, I My views have totally changed. That was 2015. It wasn't, you know, 1955. It wasn't even 2005. It was 2015 where he was caught on tape claiming that minority neighborhoods are, quote, where all the crime is. The uh, the other uh, hopefuls will also likely zero in on Bloomberg's shockingly misogynistic comments as CEO of uh, Bloomberg LP, such as saying he'd, quote, like to do that piece of meat. In reference to certain female employees, he told a saleswoman to, quote, kill it when she mentioned that she was pregnant to him. So that should go over well in a Democratic primary. Uh, I think it uh, may be a very rough night for Bloomberg on Wednesday, but we will see. Uh, So money, apparently, yes, can buy you an appearance in a Democratic debate. And apparently, according to a new national poll from NPR, PBS and Marist released on Monday, yeah, it can buy you love to some extent. It has bought Bloomberg the second place spot among the current Democratic contenders, with 19 percent of Democratic and Democratic leaning independents now supporting Michael Bloomberg. That's behind way behind, by the way, frontrunner Bernie Sanders, who is way up at 31 percent. Bloomberg being in second place, way down at 19 percent, according to this poll, where, by the way, uh, Sanders is also running better with independents than uh, with uh, th- than he is with Democrats, by the way. He's getting 37% of the independent leaners versus just 29% of the Democratic vote. Now, independents are thought to be, oh, they're more, uh, they're more moderate, they're more conservative. Well, maybe not. Uh, here, he is uh, doing great with the, uh, with the independents. Just behind Bloomberg in the NPR uh, Marist poll is uh, Biden and Warren. They're at 15 and 12 apiece, so not far off uh, off Bloomberg's mark. Klobuchar and seemingly sinking Pete Buttigieg, uh, they are at nine and eight points respectively behind them. And another poll just out before airtime, so I haven't been able to look at it yet too closely. This comes from NBC. Uh, That one has Sanders also opening up a double-digit lead in the Democratic primary, with Biden plummeting 11 points since the last poll that was taken uh, by this group. Uh, He has now slid to 15 percent with uh, with Bloomberg now tied with him essentially for second place at uh, at 14 percent. 
So, you know, maybe money can buy you love, at least from 15 or 19 percent of the Democratic-leaning electorate, at for, least for now. And Yeah, and for <laughs> now. Again, you know, this, this, this reminds me a lot of the 2016 campaign, the Republicans' boyfriend of the week, how they kept uh, going from one popular person to the other, and then that all faded eventually. So hopefully with enough staying power, we'll actually see who rises to the top on this. I do have to say, yeah. however, yeah. I do enjoy Bloomberg's ads that attack and needle Trump. You do? Yeah, they're very funny. Well, they are good. Yeah. No, he's he's good he, at, at taking on Donald Trump. I hope he keeps that up. And if he, you know, played like a regular candidate and like all of the other candidates did essentially and raised money from the public and won his support that way and faced the criticism uh for his uh, you know, pretty terrible racist record, uh well, a he might not have even been in the race by now. He might have dropped out by now, but if he was, then okay. Then Democrats had the chance to vet that rather than jumping in in the middle of the race. Remember, he's not even in any of the four uh, initial contest uh, c- contests, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. He won't even be in the game officially until March 3rd, Super Tuesday. So we will see what, you know, if anything changes after he actually does show up to play sort of on Wednesday night for the first time at the debate in Vegas when he won't even be in the Saturday Nevada caucuses. So uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens before this Saturday's meltdown. Did I say that? Yes, did I you say, did. <laughs> yes, I did say that. I am joining others to call out what could happen on Saturday as a meltdown in Nevada. And I do hope that I'm wrong, but I usually am not, unfortunately. But uh, maybe this time I will be. Why? Because it seems like everyone is predicting a mess at the caucuses this Saturday. So if it's that easy, I'm sure Washington Post and Politico, they must have it wrong. Uh, but judging by the mess uh, and the hours-long lines at early voting precincts for the caucuses over the, this past weekend... Uh, that may that mess may be very well underway. People were lining up for hours and hours at uh, I believe there was four different early voting sites. Why they had to line up for hours and hours, why they didn't have enough people. Uh, they didn't you know, predict that there would be a, a, a people coming in and have enough people to uh, uh, process them all. I don't know. Was it this new? Yes. Electronic gadget they are using to uh, sign people in and record their votes. Maybe. Washington Post reports with the Nevada caucuses days away, campaign officials and Democratic activists are increasingly alarmed that they might prove a debacle as damaging as the vote in Iowa, further setting back the party in its urgent effort to coalesce around a nominee to take on Donald Trump. On Sunday, according to the Post, campaigns said they had still not gotten the party to offer a basic explanation of how key parts of the process will work on Saturday. This is the state party. Correct. Okay. Volunteers are reporting problems with the technology that has been deployed at the last minute to make the vote count smoother. <laughs> and ex- oh, I mean, these people never learn, never learn. That's right. That's why we have to keep hammering. This <laughs> OK, over OK, and OK. Over and over. I'll hand me the hammer. Here I go. <laughs> Experts are raising serious questions about a tool that the party has feverishly assembled to replace the ones scrapped after the meltdown in Iowa. 
You're supposed to be defeating the tool in the White House, not using new tools to have a new meltdown in Nevada. One Democratic presidential aide who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss the process said it feels like the state party is making it up as they go along. Adding to the challenge is the complexity of Nevada's caucuses. Unlike in Iowa, where caucuses are conducted in one evening, Nevadans have the option of voting early at sites across the state. Democrats can rank their top presidential choices on a paper ballot. Yes, ranked choice voting, which longtime listeners of the show or readers of the Brad blog know how much I love ranked choice voting. As in not, just to be clear, you do not. (laughs) Because it's so hard to count. Uh, well, yep. This Saturday, caucus day, Democrats can gather at one of about 2,000 sites to vote for their preferred candidate. If their first choice does not get enough backing, then voters can throw their support behind someone else. And there'll be a second round of voting known as the final alignment. Somehow early voting preferences will somehow be brought into all of those rounds, will be treated the same way as though the voters were attending in person. But uh, there's a lot of people who are confused about it and are unclear how this will work. The party had planned to use two specifically designed apps for reporting results developed by political uh, technology firm, one you may have heard of by now, called Shadow, the same company that, yes, designed the vote recording app that melted down in Iowa, where a coding error made it impossible to tally results followed by the Plan B phone hotline for reporting results, uh, which became flooded by online Trump trolls reportedly, all leading to confusion and delays in Iowa. Shortly after that, Nevada Democrats said, "Uh, I think we won't use the uh, products from Shadow after all. Never mind on that. Since then, the uh, party officials have used a series of memos trying to explain how things will work, but has left uh, crucial questions unanswered, according to 2020 campaign aides. They say that we have been learning more about this process from the media than the state party or the DNC, according to one Democratic aide. Meanwhile, several campaigns complain that these conference, conference calls they're holding with party officials have only increased their sense of alarm because it seems like the people answering their questions did not know the answers and they were just reading from from, you know, prepared answers. There's questions about the state party's plan for tallying the votes. And this is where it's going to get fun. I'm sure Uh, Nevada officials have been using a Google based form that was pre-installed on party purchased iPads to register voters when they arrived during early voting. Those ballots uh, and then then the voters were given paper ballots. So we got that to rank their candidate choices. The ballots will then be verified and scanned at processing centers before they are somehow transmitted to the caucus precincts for the in-person caucuses and mixed in using Google Forms. Uh, This web application to uh, what the party is calling a caucus calculator. One volunteer who worked on past caucuses in Nevada, according to Politico, said the Google form that will be used to input vote totals was not even mentioned during a training session for precinct chairs last week. They didn't even bring it up. Quote, we weren't told at all about it, the person said. 
The iPads were not discussed until more than halfway through one of the presentations, according to a volunteer. When someone asked how early vote totals would be added to the totals compiled live at each precinct, the person leading the training said not to worry because the iPads will do the math for them. And uh, the volunteer told Political, quote, there were old ladies looking at me like, oh, we're going to have iPads? Nothing against either iPads or... Or old ladies. Indeed. I love you, Mom. That said, if you're not familiar with how these things work, well, after sitting through the two-hour training session, uh, one of these uh, people who spoke to Politico predicted the caucuses would be a, quote, complete disaster. As to the uh, the long lines, they said uh, the uh, state parties uh, for early voting, the state party said that was not due to technical issues, even though some were reported. They said that was due to the uh, high turnout. So they weren't planning on high turnout. Really? OK. Uh, anyway. Uh, the uh, folks in, in Nevada, the Democrats are all saying this is going to look good. Former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid said uh, that the early uh, vote is going to make Nevada look good and they won't have a debacle like what happened in Iowa. <laughs> uh, the the uh, Congressman uh, 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 Dina Titus, who has endorsed uh, Joe Biden, said she was concerned, but she's optimistic. She said, we've learned from Iowa. We're not using that same app. She says, might have been nicer to have a little bit more time. More time? They had three years. They had three years. You had three years, lady. Oi. Hey, on the other hand, before we take a quick break, come back with Desi Doyen in the Green News Report. Uh, some good news late last week. We didn't get a chance to report. Uh, out here in California, the meltdown that I fear could come on uh, March 3rd, Super Tuesday, may be a little less melty. Uh, the California governor, Gavin Newsom, has signed a law just late last week uh, that may, may make California, California's primaries much less of a confusing mess. May. The good news is that right on up to before and on Election Day, voters may now are allowed to change their party and vote in any primary they want all the way up to and on Election Day right at the precinct. So hopefully that clears up uh, a lot of the potential confusion that uh, tends to occur in uh, California primaries where we've got some really weird rules ourselves here. So uh, thank you, Governor. That's it. Quick break, and we are back with Governor Doyen and the Green <laughs> News Report right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Fighting like hell for your democracy, fighting like hell 
<laughs> for your planet. Yep. Uh, someone once called uh, bradblog.com the uh, patron saint of lost causes. <laughs> well, maybe so. Uh, but we will continue that fight as we do in our latest Green News Report. Tonight, relentless rain causing more river flooding and major damage across the south. Yet another state now grappling with extreme rains and floods. Antarctica hits another record high. Trump EPA guts another public health pollution standard. Plus... I'm done with fossil fuels. We're done. CNBC pundit warns the writing is on the wall for fossil fuels. Did someone in Jim Cramer's studio have a hairball there? (laughs) Apparently. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. These stocks don't want to be owned by younger people. You're seeing divestiture by a lot of different funds. It's going to be a parade. Wow. That is, that's a, a really tough stream to swim against. Start swimming, lady. This is your Green News Report. We're in a new world. They're tobacco. That's, uh, that's a rough prognosis. I'm going to think some more about that. Uh, We're yeah, watching. prognosis negative. Okay, Desi Doyen, I know how much you cannot stand billionaires, <laughs> but there is one billionaire who is now committing to give $10 billion to fight the climate crisis? Yes, uh, billionaire Jeff Bezos of Amazon announced he's pledging $10 billion to fund climate solution research grants. Kudos to Amazon employees who organized to pressure Bezos to do more on climate change. And it is great what he is doing, but it is barely a dent in his fortune. Critics also note that Bezos could make a huge difference immediately just by canceling Amazon's oil and gas contracts. Yeah, and they could start paying taxes but I guess it's better to give $10 billion to fight the climate crisis than give it to Donald Trump to drill for more oil. Meanwhile, Antarctica has done it again, breaking a new all-time high temperature record. Brazilian scientists recorded a balmy 68 degrees mm. Fahrenheit, 68, on Antarctica's Seymour Island on February 9th, breaking the previous record set just three days before. In an interview with CBS, NASA scientist Gavin Schmidt explained the heat is not just on on in Antarctica, the entire planet just experienced its hottest January since record-keeping began in the 1800s. In the U.S., this is the warmest winter that we've had on record. Uh, this has been extremely warm. Records are breaking uh, across Europe uh, and in, uh, in Siberia. We're seeing massive uh, temperature changes uh, in almost all of the oceans. It's a cascading effect. One effect... A state of emergency in Mississippi in a scene that is becoming all too familiar and frequent around the United States. Weeks of relentless rains have overwhelmed flood control systems and reservoirs in both Mississippi and Tennessee, triggering the worst flooding in nearly 40 years around Jackson, Mississippi's state capital. And more rain is on the way, warns Republican Governor Tate Reeves. We do not anticipate this situation to end anytime soon. If you have not evacuated yet, We urge you to do so. And recovery from the floods is going to be expensive. Remember last year's record floods in the upper Midwest? I do. Those caused billions in damages and decimated farmers. In Michigan, state officials warned this week that it will cost roughly $100 million Mm. to repair and upgrade infrastructure at about 40 locations around the state that were damaged by last year's long flood event. 
Meanwhile, the Trump EPA is trying to roll back yet another Obama-era pollution standard, even though the utility industry does not want them to. The mercury and air toxics rule has succeeded in cutting 85 percent of toxic mercury pollution emitted by coal-fired power plants, and it did it at just one-third of the projected cost. But the Trump administration is trying to permanently change how the federal government calculates the costs and benefits from pollution regulations by not including any side benefits, like when a new regulation simultaneously reduces other additional toxic pollutants, because that would make it appear that new regulations have little or no benefits that would justify the costs to industry. So this regulation gets rid of mercury in the air and water that is severely damaging on all sorts of levels. It ended up costing much less than expected, than industry said it would. The benefits have been much higher. And now you've got the Trump administration trying to roll it back anyway, even though the industry affected by it does not want it to be rolled back. Exactly. Brilliant. The Trump EPA is trying to prop up the dying coal industry for a few more years at the expense of Americans' health. Well, who cares about Americans' health, I guess? Finally, tectonic shifts appear to be underway in the oil industry. Just days before oil giant BP announced that it's shifting strategy to diversify and cut its contribution to global warming, CNBC commentator Jim Cramer warned that he believes fossil fuels are not a good long-term investment. We're starting to see investment all over the world. starting to see the big pension funds saying, listen, we're not going to own them anymore. The world's changed, and we're in the death knell phase. Wow. Jim Cramer saying, get rid of your fossil fuels. Yeah. We've been telling you to sell those fossil fuels for years, and you've lost Jim Cramer, as they say. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Cause the writings in the certainly is, isn't it? Yep, it, it, it is. is. Shift happens. It happens slowly <laughs> and then it happens quickly. If Jim Cramer on CNBC is saying fossil fuels are done, that's probably the biggest news uh, that could have. Bigger than last week, you talked about BP uh, saying that they're changing their ways. They're going to go to net zero. Yeah, this happened I, before that. So yeah. I think that there are some tectonic shifts that are not being covered in the corporate media about what's happening in the oil industry. Once again, sell your fossil fuel <laughs> shares uh, before they are worthless. All right, got to get out. Thank you very much to Desi Doyen, our producer, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made available uh, thanks to the uh, generous listeners out there who support Desi and I's work. Me's work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. I never know how to say that. You can also drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I hope you'll find, follow, and share all that I do at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh.